morning. Um, we're going to be reading from Esther chapter 1. Uh, it can be found on page 410 of the Bibles in front of you. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read, if you're able. And again, that's on page 410 of the Bibles in front of you, if you have one. It's Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these were, days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble, marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of pomfrey, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do, um, to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men sat next to him being Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Hashuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said, in the presence of the king and the officials. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. But this very day the noble women of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before Queen Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may, may be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we give you thanks for giving us your word, because by it we are made wise to salvation. We're given wisdom and insight into the way things are in this world. We pray that you would help us to hear it and today to believe it in such a way that it would make a difference in our lives. Come help us for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as you can tell by the passage we read, we're starting a new sermon series today through the biblical book of Esther. And I am so excited for this series that will go through this summer for a number of reasons. Uh, One of them being, it's just a great story. If you have never read through the book of Esther, even done so in one sitting, I would encourage you, give 30 minutes of your day today, because that's all it'll take from beginning to end for you to read this story, and you'll come to see its contours and come to love it as well. But I'm especially glad, especially excited for this series, because Esther is, in a lot of ways, a lot of like the world you and I inhabit. It's a lot like the world you and I live in. Now, granted, this story takes place in 483 B.C., so it's roughly 2,500 years ago, and we live in 2019, so that's a little bit different. And then, granted, it takes place in the Middle East, on the border of Iraq and Iran, on the other side of the world, and we live in America, so that, too, is a little bit different. And granted, this story takes place in the middle of the Persian Empire with an orphan Jewish girl who becomes queen and saves her people from mass genocide. So that, too, might be a little different than your life and mine. But outside of those differences, it's exactly the same. Okay? Consider this. Do you know what is most famous about the book of Esther? What's most famous, what it's most well-known for, observed by everyone who's read it, Jewish, Christian, secular, religious, what everyone notices right away is that in this entire book, in 10 chapters, God is never seen. God never speaks. God never shows up. God is, in fact, never mentioned, not once, in the entire book of Esther. There's not even a reference to God in the entire book of Esther. And in that way, in a book, in the Bible, with God not named, not mentioned, not seen, not heard, who makes no appearance whatsoever in this entire story, in that way, Esther is very different than the other books of the Bible. In the other books of the Bible, if God's people are in trouble, if they need to be rescued or saved, then God shows up and you can't miss God. When God shows up, the sea is parted in two. When God shows up, plagues touch down on the ground. When God shows up, his voice thunders so that the mountains shake. When God shows up, smoke and billows roll. When God shows up, you can't miss him. If a movie's going to be made, it's big budget, blockbuster, special effects when God shows up. In Esther, there's none of that. There's no signs, no wonders, no prophets, no explicit prayer, no miracles, no word, no voice, not even a whisper from God. There's no God in the entire book. The book is literally godless. It's a godless book. And because of that, for a long time, people didn't know what to do with the book of Esther or why it was even in our Bibles. So, for example, some of the reformers of the Protestant tradition, they've preached sermons throughout every book of the Bible, written commentaries on everything. Calvin never preached, for example, from Esther. 
Never wrote a commentary on the book. For a long time, people didn't know what to do with this book. Because after all, what can you learn about God from a book that doesn't mention God? What can you see about God from a book where God is not seen? How do you hear from God through a book where he doesn't speak? And yet, the answer that we'll see 10 chapters from now is a lot. There's a lot to see about a God that you can't see. And a lot to learn from a God that doesn't make an appearance. And a lot you'll hear about a God who in this book doesn't speak. In that way, I want you to hear Esther is a lot like the world you and I inhabit. Esther is a lot like the world where you wake up in the morning and if you open a newspaper or you scroll through your news feed, or you turn on the news, you'll see that this world also daily reports of human activity and human actions throughout the entire world with no appearance of God. That all the time, things are moving, events are happening, because man is alive and doing things, but where is God in the midst of this world? If you look through your newspaper, if you look through your news feed, you'll see a world ruled by presidents and parliaments and prime ministers. You'll see a world governed by natural laws of nature and human laws of human governments. That things happen in the world because we human beings make them happen. And when we can't explain things, we call it chance or coincidence or happenstance. Or we say things like, it just so happened. You'll see, like I'll see, a world where the powerful and the successful and the wealthy and the beautiful sit on top of the world and everyone else ekes out their existence wishing we were like them. I mean, that's the world you and I live in. A world where at the top are those that are rich and beautiful and powerful and successful. The top Twitter accounts in the world, the most followed Twitter accounts, belong to Katy Perry, Barack Obama, Justin Bieber, Rihanna, Taylor Swift. The most followed Instagram accounts in the world. Cristiano Ronaldo, Ariana Grande, Selena Gomez, The Rock, and King Kardashian. That's the world. The world in which the wealthy and the beautiful are at the top. The world in which the powers that be govern things while you and I eke out an existence. And in the middle of that real world, the world that you can see, the world that you can hear, the world that you can touch, the world that you can feel, where is God in all of that? Where is God in a world where you can't see God? Where is God in a world where he makes no appearance? Because to the naked eye, you would say, he's nowhere. Now listen, you might choose to have faith in an invisible God, but our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates, our family members would tell us, you're welcome to believe in this invisible God. But if he is there, he's awfully quiet. And if he is there, he has hidden himself spectacularly well. And if he is there, you can understand why we would have a hard time believing he's in charge of this whole world. And even for us who do believe, or for those of us who want to believe, haven't you ever wrestled with the fact that it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of data out there for him? Doesn't feel often like, doesn't it feel sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, like the hiddenness of God, a God who hides himself, 
who can't be seen, who can't be heard, in a world where there are no signs or wonders or miracles or voice from heaven that we readily see or see all the time, where he feels absent, where he feels silent? Haven't you ever wrestled with, where is God in that world? Or even if you scale down from the cosmos, just to your individual life, when things go from bad to worse, as they often will, is God really in charge Is God really in charge of this whole world? And if you've ever wrestled with those kinds of things, then I want you to hear that's why you and I need the book of Esther. Because in this book, what you'll see 10 chapters in is he's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's behind everything. And to the question of who is in charge, Esther 1 begins. Esther 1, there's so much we could say as an overview to the book of Esther and themes to introduce in the book of Esther, but I I trust that over these 10 chapters, you'll see those themes drawn out. But Esther 1 is where we'll jump into today, and Esther 1 has us asking this question, who's in charge of the world? Who sits on top of the world? Who's seated on the world's throne? If this is Titanic, who stretches their arm and goes, I'm the king of the world? Who gets to say that? And as the book opens, it opens with option one. Enter contestant number one to who is in charge of the world. Esther 1 verse 1. It's on page 410. You need your Bible open so that you can follow along with us. Here's the first three verses. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. So it starts with who's in charge? Who sits on the world's throne? Who's on top of the world? Who's king of the world? And the first option for who's in charge is the man who, when the curtain lifts and the lights go on on stage, is seated right at center stage and is seated on a throne. It's the king that you meet in the very opening lines and the first verse. King Ahasuerus. Now that's a mouthful to say, so I'm going to say his Greek name, which you may have heard. His other name is Xerxes. This is King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. And what you begin to discover, both in history and in Esther 1, is Xerxes has this king and this kingdom that feels omnipotent and omnipresent. Meaning, the sense you get is this king is all-powerful, and his rule and his reign extends everywhere. That's not hyperbole. Do you hear it? This is the Xerxes, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. That's the narrator's way of telling you this kingdom was vast. It stretched to the ends of the known world at the time. Modern day, from Pakistan to Sudan. And if I had time, I'd list you all the countries in between that Xerxes ruled over. It's a kingdom so vast and so wide that one capital city wouldn't do. Meaning, if you rule over America, you might have one in Washington, D.C. But if your empire went from the tip of Canada to the bottom of South America, then you might have some several capital cities to rule over your empire. This kingdom was so vast, it took not one, but four different capital cities, with Susa being one of them. 
On the border of Iraq and Iran is situated the city of Susa, and in it you'll find the palace complex of Xerxes the king. And they literally built the complex 120 feet above the city so that the subjects would look up into the heavens, and perched high above them was the throne of Xerxes. So if it's 483 B.C., and you go, I look to the heavens, and where does my help come from? The answer would be from Xerxes, seated high above you, whose kingdom is exalted and high above you. This is the kingdom of Xerxes. To this point in history, no one has had a kingdom as vast as his. It's not hyperbole to say he literally ruled the edges of the known world, meaning Columbus hasn't come to America, so no one knows about Philadelphia. No one knows of these other sections. The known world, Xerxes rules it from edge to edge, from one end to the other. So it's not an exaggeration to say he is literally on top of the world. He's the king of the known world. And not only his rule and reign is vast, but so is his power and his wealth and his might. When we're dropped into the story, we're literally dropped into the middle of a feast. Do you notice that? The book starts with a feast, and what you'll learn in these 10 chapters of Esther is feasts are prominent in this book. Feasts happen over and over and over again. In fact, feasts start the book, there's feasts in the middle of the book, and there's feasts at the end of the book. And in fact, these feasts are significant. They're critical to the story because what happens at these feasts tell the twists and turns that happen in this story. Well, we start in the vast, omnipresent rule of King Xerxes, and we get a sense of his omnipotence as well because we're thrown into the middle of a feast. Now, I won't read it for the sake of time, but scan with your eyes verses 3 through 9. And you'll get a sense of the feast that Ahasuerus, Xerxes, throws. The king of the world hosts a party. Now look at me. You've been to parties before, but you've never been to a party that started on New Year's Day and it was July by the time it finished. For 180 days, for six months... This man threw a feast and a party and invited to this feast were all the powers that be of the Persian Empire. All the elites and all the celebrities, all the red carpet came out for all the who's who. And then when the six months was done, he ends it with a week-long feast where now he invites everyone in the city to come. So every man, both high and low, and all the women go off either because the men's party was so debaucherous or because of size, and the queen hosts a feast for the women. But now the men of the city come for a week to the palace. They're invited into the king's house, and now they're given a week-long party, and the king pulls out all the stops for them. I mean, there's an open bar. Literally, you read of this in verse 7 and verse 8. The, the rule was there is no rule. That's the one rule of this party. There's no compulsion, meaning you, you drink and you do not stop. So you can imagine a six-month party with the men of the city and the men of the empire with no limit to alcohol and no limit at all, and the only rule of the party being that there are no rules. And here's the thing. This entire feast, this entire party was set up with one purpose, 
You see it in verse 4. It's to show off the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. That is, that it takes six months of feasting and festival to show off to the people one thing after another so that they might get full view of his royal glory and his splendor and his pomp and his greatness. The entire thing is to show off the glory of this king, this omnipotent, omnipresent king. Now, if you've read the Bible before, you hear the word glory, and you know that's a worship word. And in fact, this sequence of words, royal, glory, splendor, The only time those words are clumped together in the entire Bible is also Psalm 145. And it's a psalm declaring that Yahweh, God alone, is full of royal glory splendor. And the only other place is here to describe Xerxes or consider the king's palace and his garden. I was reading one book that said, do you know there's literally only two gardens in the entire Old Testament that are mentioned? One is the Garden of God that starts in Eden in the book of Genesis. And the only other garden mentioned is that of Xerxes here. Or you consider the description of his palace. You consider the description. Do you hear it? White curtains, violet hangings, silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold, marble and mother of earth and precious stones. You get this detailed description of the king's dwelling place. Do you know the only other place in the Old Testament where a dwelling place is described in this kind of detail is God's dwelling place, the temple, the tabernacle. The only other place in the Bible where royal glory and splendor is used is to describe God. The only other place where you get a garden is God's garden. The only other house that's built like this is God's house. So anyone reading this story is supposed to see that this man seated on the throne is God-like. At least he thinks so. His royal glorious splendor, his garden and his palace, all of its shouts There is no king like Xerxes. There's none like him. You can choose to believe in an invisible God. That's your right. But here's a king we can see. And his music we can hear. And his wine we can taste. And his reign and rule we can observe. Here's a king who shows up. Here's a king who makes an appearance in such a way that you can't miss it. Here's a king whose power is evident, whose presence is visible. And so if you asked anyone in the world in 483 BC, who's in charge of the world? Who sits on top of the world? Who sits on the world's throne? Who's the king of the world? the undisputed clear answer would be Xerxes. Ahasuerus is king of the world. And if you ask that person, what about Yahweh? They would have said to you, who? And if you unpack for them, you know, Yahweh, the king of the Jews, the God of the Jewish people, they would have said, hold on, that that small minority that's scattered throughout the empire, that was driven out of its own land and its own temple was destroyed and its king is no more and now some have been allowed to go back to rebuild 
their king? Well, you're welcome to believe that. But as far as I can tell, Xerxes is on top of the world. And if you said, but what about the stories of the Red Sea and the the plagues and the miracles and the voice and the prophets? They would have said, you are welcome to believe that. But as far as we can tell, we haven't seen him or heard him in these parts. And there is overwhelming data to tell us that the wealthy and the rich and the powerful rule the world. I'm telling you, it'd be like if you told your coworker, your friend, your neighbor, your classmate, Jesus Christ is king of the world, and he's Lord of lords and king of kings, and he rules over all, and your friend might politely say, you're welcome to believe that. Your friend might say, really? Because I have data that would suggest otherwise, and it sure doesn't seem like it. But now, now, Sabmarod, the narrator is going to help us see that things are not quite as they seem. Because now the narrator is going to start poking us in the ribs and says, watch this omnipotent, invincible, omnipresent king. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and I'm going to skip these names because Austin read them perfectly, so just remember how he said it. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Watch what happens. Six months of no compulsion drinking. And at the end of 180 and then seven days of partying, you get an intoxicated, inebriated Xerxes, whose heart is, the text says, merry with wine. He has spent six months and seven days showing off his greatness, his glory, and his splendor. But watch this, Seven Mile Road. He has one last thing to show off. He has one more trophy to display, one more trinket to unravel and unveil in front of his guests that will take their breath away. You see, if the curtains and the purple hangings and the silver rods and the marble pillars and the couches of gold and silver were to make you drool and lust after everything Xerxes has, then he has one more thing to parade in front of this mob of drunken men, to strut before them that will now make their hearts race and their pulse quicken and their palms sweaty and their mouths drop. He's going to strut in front of the mob of drunken men, his wife. And he summons Queen Vashti to come, wearing her royal crown as the grand finale to show off his greatness. And verse 12 says, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. Of course he did. And his anger burned within him. You know how, if you're a parent, you know how it's one thing if your kid throws uh, the timing of this. You know how it's one thing if your kid throws, for example, a temper tantrum in your house when no one else is seeing? That's one thing. But you know how it's different if they throw a temper tantrum at the checkout line in the grocery store? Now everybody's there and watching, and everybody's judging you, and everybody's looking at you, and you now what? 
You have to do everything you can to play off this moment. So you say things like, oh, he missed his nap, right? And, and yours, is the, yours is the one sleep-deprived kid in the entire universe because they always miss their nap, right? And so you come up with these excuses because you, you, you have to save face. You have to say whatever you can. And, and you're saying, I just hope he's okay. And inside you're going, I'm going to kill you. As soon as we get in the car, I'm going to kill you. Why? Because it's one thing to be put on display in front of everyone. Magnify that by a billion. And now you have Xerxes, the omnipotent, all-powerful king who rules over the entire known world and everyone is under his control and he can't even get his wife to come when she was called. And everybody saw it. He summoned for his wife and his wife said no. And so in front of the entire empire, he just got punked and played, and owned, and rejected, and humiliated in front of everyone. And now this very powerful man, it seems, has a very delicate ego, a very tender ego. The king goes ballistic. He's furious. And what unfolds, Road from this moment on is almost comical. I won't read it again for the sake of time. It's 13 to 22, because now a crisis has hit the kingdom. And so they are scrambling to know what to do. And so the king calls his seven top advisors. So it's Xerxes and the seven dwarves, I mean, his, his advisors, okay? They come, and verse 15, here's what it says. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials... Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the province of King Ahasuerus. For the king's behavior will be known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. I want you to hear this. The king grabs his seven dwarves and they come together and they go, this is bad. This is really bad. Because what? If the queen could turn down the king, what do you think our wives are going to do to us? That's literally the question in the empire. If word gets out of what Vashti has done, we're dead. Women everywhere are going to say no to their husbands. We cannot imagine such a thing in this kingdom, right? And so that's what they're going. We're going to have women everywhere not listening to their husbands. So literally, the king calls together a cabinet meeting. He calls his top advisors. And by the way, in the entire book of Esther, this omnipotent, all-powerful Xerxes never makes one decision of his own. In the entire book, someone suggests, Xerxes, you should do this, and Xerxes goes, let's do that. And someone else says, you should do this, and Xerxes does this. The omnipotent, all-powerful, invincible king of the world cannot make one decision without asking somebody, what should I do? And throughout this book, this fool, this king, is now asking these men, what should I do? Do you see, Semarod, that this now becomes an issue of national security? We are at Code Red, at DEFCON 1, because the biggest threat to the empire is not the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Spartans of Greece. It is the housewives of Persia. And now what are we going to do about them? So the most powerful advisors of the most powerful man, of the most powerful empire in the world, comes up with this. In verse 19 to 22, they basically say, here's what we'll do. 
will issue a royal order to go out. It'll go out throughout the entire empire, and it'll go to everyone because, verse 20, the kingdom is vast, and will decree that every woman is to give honor to every one of their husbands, both high and low alike, and will translate it so that it goes out to every person and no one misses this edict. So follow this with me. Here's the solution of the most powerful advisors, of the most powerful man, of the most powerful empire in the known world. If word gets out of what Vashti has done, wives everywhere will stand up to their husbands. We can't have that. So here's what we'll do. Here's the solution. We will spread word to everywhere of what Vashti has done. Did you catch that? The problem is, if word gets out of what Vashti has done, the solution is, we will spread the word of what Vashti has done to every corner of the empire. And the empire is vast, so we've got to translate this. So you literally got to knock on a door in Pakistan and ring a bell in Sudan and say, we want you to know what Vashti did. The solution to making sure that Vashti's actions don't get heard is to tell everyone of what Vashti has done. And then you think of this, Vashti doesn't want to come to the king, so her punishment, oh yeah, well, you don't get to come to the king. That'll show her. Wait, she goes, I don't want to come to the king, and your punishment is from now on, you don't get to come to the king. That makes perfect sense. It's like saying, I quit, and then you yelling, well, you're fired. Well, you can't fire somebody that just quit. She doesn't want to come to the king, and the punishment that will solve it is she doesn't get to come to the king anymore. Or you consider this. The problem of this whole passage is one wife cannot be controlled by the edict of the king. The solution will send out an edict of the king that will now control all wives everywhere. One wife wouldn't listen to the king, so the solution is we'll command all wives everywhere from Pakistan to Sudan to listen to the king. Are you beginning to get the sense that it feels like the emperor has no clothes on? Are you getting the sense that maybe this king and his kingdom is not nearly as invincible or all-powerful or omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient as you might have once thought? Are you getting the sense that if this really is the kind of power, catch this of Marud, if this really is the kind of power that sits atop of the world, then it's pretty laughable, like a big joke, that the most powerful man in the world is a rich, egotistical, easily offended, fly-off-the-handle, womanizing fool. You come to the end of chapter 1, and you end up going, poor, rich Xerxes. Poor, rich Xerxes. And you end up saying, this king and his kingdom is silly and comical and laughable. I think we are supposed to laugh at Xerxes. But as we do, ironically, don't we end up finding ourselves laughing at ourselves as well? Because the truth is, we can be just like him. Tell me, are you not tempted to believe that life is found in beauty and wealth and power? Has it never crossed your mind that the way to be at the top is to be beautiful? and wealthy, and successful, and rich? Does every pursuit of your life match the guy you're laughing at in this story? Aren't we always looking to make an appearance, always wanting to be seen, always tempted to show off? We wouldn't throw a six-month party 
to that end. We're much more subtle about it. But aren't we tempted to show off the homes we live in or the clothes we wear or the cars we drive or the titles next to our name or the bodies we have or the talents of our children? We will parade an endless number of things in front of people hoping they will catch a glimpse of our glory. Don't we have this insatiable desire that someone would notice us and someone would see our splendor and the pomp of our greatness? Don't you and I have delicate egos where a thousand compliments and achievements could come our way, but all it takes is one snub for our worlds to crumble, for one person to not notice or to say a harsh word and we fall apart, burn inside with anger. Esther 1 is showing us that what we're looking for and what we need cannot be found in the kingdoms of this world. So then we're left to ask again, who's in charge of the world? Who sits on the world's throne? Who's on top of the world? And the book of Esther is going to say, there's another option. There's a hidden contestant number two. I read this week in a commentary that the book of Esther, literally the name Esther, in Hebrew means, I am hiding. The word Esther in Hebrew means I am hiding. That hiding and concealment is a big store part of this story. And it's true. In chapter 1, Vashti conceals her body and will not let it be shown. In chapter 2, when you meet her, Esther conceals and hides her identity and will not let it be known. Later, she'll have a feast and she'll hide her intentions from the king. There's hiding all throughout. But all throughout, there is someone hiding in the book of Esther. In fact, Esther is going to tell us that there is a central character in the story that's hiding. In fact, the story of Esther is the hero of this book is hiding. That sometimes the God of the Bible shows up in big budget, blockbuster, larger than life, special effects ways where you can't miss him. And sometimes he's so humble he doesn't make an appearance at all. Sometimes he comes in small, ordinary, invisible ways where you can't see him, and he even lets you chalk up things to chance. He even lets you describe them as coincidence. He even lets it go that all these things that happen by his invisible hand are unseen and unnoticed. In Esther, I won't go through it now, but the list of things that just so happen in the book pile up so high that by the time you get to chapter 10, you go, this all didn't just so happen. It didn't just so happen that a king ended up getting drunk and issued a command. And it just so happened that as a result, the queen didn't come. And it just so happened that as a result of that, she's deposed and and her downfall comes. And it just so happens that because of that, there's a contest essentially throughout the empire. And it just so happens that out of all the people, a Jewish girl is exalted to the throne. And it just so happens that her uncle ends up being at the gate at the right moment, at the right time to hear a word. And it just so happens that the king has a sleepless night. And it just so happens that out of all the books in the library of the world, they pull out this one book that it just so happens he needed to read and it just so happens and it just so happens and it just so happens till you go, none of this just so happened. There's someone hiding in the story that is pulling the strings that is seated behind in a greater throne than Xerxes who truly does rule the world. I tell you something I wrote, it's worth even today 
for you to take inventory of your life and you to go, what are the things that just so happened to bring me to the place that I am and to this very moment? What are the things that just so worked out? We were away yesterday with Elder Track, with some of these guys, and we were doing our timelines again. And as we told our stories, there was just one thing after another that just so happened. It just so happened that this person walked into the room at just the right time. It just so happened that this opportunity that wasn't there before opened up the next day. It just so happened, and it just so happened till you begin to see none of this just so happened. And that there is someone hiding behind the story who's providentially ruling all things. I read this week that providence is like Hebrew in that it's best and understood read backwards. Meaning the Hebrew language, you don't read it like we read English. You read it backwards, and that's how it's understood. Providence is like that. While you're in the middle of it, it makes no sense. But you come to some time, and then you look back, and you go, all of this made perfect sense. I'm exactly where I am, doing what I'm doing in this very moment. And if you're in the thick of something you don't understand, just give it enough time. Because God works all things according to his purposes for the good of those who love him. Let me say this, and then we'll be done. Centuries after the Persian Empire was reduced to nothing, was reduced to a footnote in history, where I say the name Ahasuerus and you go, who? You think of that. The most powerful man in the entire cosmos of his time, and you don't even know his name. When he became nothing, other empires came to rule, one of which became Rome. And Caesar sat on the throne, and yet right under their nose, while they didn't even see it and didn't even know it, the true king positioned into a manger in Bethlehem, another savior of his people. And the world missed it. And here's the thing. Jesus is the embodiment of the hidden presence of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hidden presence of God. Jesus is God revealed and God hidden at the same time. In Jesus, God is revealed, the hidden God. And in Jesus, the revealed God is hidden. I mean, you think of this. Jesus showed up, and here is God in the flesh. You couldn't miss him. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he did miracles, and he said things, and you could touch him, and you could hear him, and you could see him, and the presence of God was in your midst. You couldn't miss him. The hidden God was revealed. But here's Jesus, and the whole world missed him. I mean, God was in the flesh, and they thought he was demon-possessed. God was in the flesh, and they thought he was evil or insane, and they crucified and killed him because they missed him, because the revealed God was hidden. And how is that not more seen than at the cross? And if you think of this, Jesus so experiences the hiddenness of God that he experiences that with us and for us, so that Jesus can say on the cross, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? That Jesus could look up into a sky and know like you know, I don't see God anywhere for your sake and for mine. That's the story of Esther. But the story of the Bible is this. Jesus is the king that we so badly want and need. He's the one who will host a feast where all the nations of the world will come. And they'll come into his city. And they'll come into his palace. And they'll come into a garden. And there will be no compulsion in that world. And, and you'll come and it'll take not six months, but all of eternity. It'll take all of forever for you to see his greatness and his glory and his splendor. 
And at that feast, Jesus will not exploit his bride because Jesus is one who was stripped naked to clothe her and who was put to shame to honor her. And Jesus' invitation to us will not be out of lust or for himself, but out of love for you so you will be beckoned to his feast. Esther 1 is shouting to us, we need a better king of the world. And the Bible is shouting to us, we have one in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you've given us this book. Now by your spirit, come convince us that these things are true. Convince us that we ought to live by faith and not by sight. And that things are not always as they seem. The powers that be are not as invincible as we think they are. And the invisible God is not as absent as we think he is. Help us by faith to believe that you are king of the world. We have no other king but you. And help us as we even now come to the feast you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are invited, Seven Mile Road, those of you who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who have Jesus as your king, you are to come to his feast. Here is bread pointing to the fact that he gave his body for you. And a cup pointing to the fact that he shed his blood for you. So if you know Jesus as your king, you're welcome to come to this feast. It's small right now, but it's a preview of a much greater, grander feast where all the nations of the world will come and sup with him, and he will adorn his bride, his people, with beauty and splendor. That all is pointed to at this table. So if you have faith in Christ, come to this meal. If you don't know Jesus as Lord then the invitation to you is not to come to this meal, for the Bible warns that if you eat this meal in an unworthy way, rather than blessing, it'll be judgment on you. And so in love for you, you're cautioned to say, if you don't know the king, then don't come to his table yet, but rather submit today to the rule and reign of Jesus over your life. If you have any questions about what it means to receive Jesus as king, Jesus as savior, then please talk with a pastor here or a member at Seven Mile Road, and we'd love to explain that to you. I'll give you a moment to receive this invitation, to, to pray and examine your heart, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Let's stand together. I'll lead us in a responsive reading. You can read in unison the parts that say all as we come to the Lord's table. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord has prepared this table for all who love him, who are sorry for their sins and trust in him alone for salvation. So come, those who have much faith and those who would like to have more, those who have been to this table often and those who have not been for a long time, those who have tried to follow Jesus and those who have failed, it is Jesus Christ who invites us to meet him here. Come not because we are righteous, but because we are repentant. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken. At this meal, God declares that our sins have been completely forgiven through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, by faith, we come now to your table.
Come with faith in Jesus. Come to this table. Come to feast with him. Believe those things in your heart. Take the bread and the cup. Bring it back to your seats. And then we'll participate in this meal together. Oh 